Well, this morning we begin a new study in the book of Joel in your Old Testament. That one may be a book that you do not turn to often, so feel free, if you don't know where the book of Joel is, to look up in the front of your Bible and get a page number and find out how to get to the book of Joel. So it's right after Daniel and Hosea and Joel. Bible scholars classified Joel as a minor prophet. That does not mean that the truths contained in this book are of minor importance. It simply means that it it is short. There are books classified as major prophets, which would be books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Those books go from almost 50 chapters to almost 70 chapters in length. Here, little Joel just goes three chapters. Thus, it's referred to as a minor prophet and not a major prophet, but its truths are of major importance. When we talk about the prophets, we are talking about men of God who had a special calling upon their life to verbalize and record a message from God to God's people. Oftentimes it was a foretelling of a message that the people uh, had never heard before. It was a message specifically for them. Oftentimes it was a foretelling of something that's going to happen in the future. And here in this little book of Joel, we will find both present. We don't know much about this little book. All we know is that it is authored by a man named Joel. The name means Yahweh is God. We know he is the son of Pethuel, but we know nothing about Pethuel. We do not even know when this little book was written. Most modern-day Bible teachers believe it was probably written as a post-exilic letter, meaning that it was written after Israel and Judah had been taken into captivity, Israel by the Assyrians, Judah by the Babylonians, and then started to come back, and most believe that this little book probably was written sometime after 515 B.C., when the second temple was built. Why study the Old Testament? Why study this little book of Joel? Because it's a word from God. We study Joel because it has a word for you and for me. This particular book talks about the believer and when believers sin and how God brings discipline into their lives. It talks about repentance of a believer and God's faithfulness to his people. It tells us how we should respond to God today and what God has planned for the future. And today we are going to talk about God-sized issues. 
God-sized issues are those things that hit your life and hit my life that we eventually come to the point where we realize this is too big for me. I don't have the intellect. I don't have the strength. I don't have the ability to fix it. I cannot figure out how to make all of this right in my eyes. Those are God-sized issues. And today, as we are in Joel, we're going to see one of these God-sized issues facing God's people. I'm going to read it out loud, Joel chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. You can follow along in your copy of the Bible. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it. And let your sons tell their sons. And their sons the next generation. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. What the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It's made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn. The ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined. The land mourns for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up. Fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley. Because the harvest of the field is destroyed, the vine dries up and the fig tree fails. The pomegranate and at the palm also, the apple tree, all the trees of the field dried up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Gird yourselves with sackcloth. Lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Joel chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, talks about a God-sized issue. It's an issue... That the people of Israel cannot fix themselves. One of my favorite passages in the entire Bible is found in 2 Chronicles 20. And I'm going to read it out loud. You can just listen or turn if you wish. It starts out with a God-sized issue. In 2 
Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with the sons of the Meonites, came to war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram. And behold, they are in Hazan Tamar, that is in Gedi. Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. And then down in verse 12, it records King Jehoshaphat's prayer. O our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming in against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's a verse that's good for us as believers to memorize. We're powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And here we find the prophet Joel talking to the people of Israel who are in the midst of a God-sized issue. Every year my wife Barbara and I go to Chicago. We get our big city fix. We've lived in big cities uh, right after we were married. Two weeks after we were married, we moved to Dallas, Texas. Lived in Dallas, Texas five years. So we there's parts of the big city that we really enjoy. I wouldn't want to live there, but it's nice to visit once in a while. Well, one of our recent trips, we were downtown, and it just broke loose with a storm. I mean, gale force winds torrential rains and i've seen this happen on television it had never happened to us our umbrella inverted and then we looked around and the trash cans on the street were filled with inverted umbrellas it we weren't the only ones and our umbrella inverted and there we were defenseless torrential rains Wind. I had all I could do to stay behind my wife. <laughs> Just kind of joking about that part. When we hit a God-sized issue, that's what it feels like. Defenseless. Torrential. Unprotected. And that's what it feels like for these people here. We see in the first four verses exactly what's happening. Their land has been devastated. Now, that's a little bit difficult for us, even those of us who have grown up here in Iowa, because even though we would say that historically we have been an agrarian-based society, most of us are pretty far removed from the land. I try to stay as connected as I can be. But they had no grocery store to go to. 
I mean, it's wiped out. Devastation. And Joel has a message for these people. And the first thing he says is, we need to talk about this. We need to pause and really take heart at the immensity of the situation. You see, underneath what Joel is saying is this. God uses God-sized issues in the lives of His people. God uses God-sized issues in the lives of His people. He uses them. And, and Joel here is challenging his listeners and his readers, learn from this, take stock in this, and then pass on what you've learned. Talk about it with your sons and your sons' sons. That believers should share with the next generation about God's faithfulness through God-sized issues. Verse 1 begins, the word of the Lord. Now that's very common in a prophet or a prophecy, a book of prophecy. For example, the books of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Jonah, Micah, Zechariah, all start with this same phrase, the word of the Lord. Now that's important. It's a very poignant, vivid reminder. This is God's authoritative word. It's a message to us. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And he calls out to all the peoples of the land, to Israel's leaders, the elders, and all of the people. Verse 2, hear this, O elders, and listen all the inhabitants of the land. And then he asks a rhetorical question. Has anything like this happen in your days or in your father's days? The answer is no way. We've never seen anything like this. Well, what's happening? Look at verse 4. They have been hit with wave after wave after wave of a locust infestation. This insect, this devouring insect has come and come and come and stripped everything bare. Verse 4. There's a pattern here. Notice the words left and has eaten. What the nine locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. What the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Now in the Old Testament, there are nine different words for locust. And it is impossible to differentiate between those nine different terms. We don't have enough information from other passages in the Bible and other writings outside of the Bible to be able to make an identification of that this word for locust refers to this. In fact, in your English translations, you will find different words 
to translate the four of the nine that are in this passage. The New American Standard translates them gnawing locusts, swarming locusts, creeping locusts, and stripping locusts. Some believe that these are different varieties of locusts. Some believe that these locusts are just talking about different phases of the locust life cycle. Some believe that God just used synonyms for the locust to just stress the fact that it came in wave after wave after wave. Bottom line is this. Everything's gone. Stripped bare. And so Joel says to the people in verse 3, talk about it. Take stock. Think about the immensity of this. And as he looks at the whole message of the book of Joel, and as we're going to start seeing next week, that God is absolutely in control of this situation. Joel is going to, right from the outset of this book, challenge the listeners and the, and the readers to learn from this. And what you learn about God-sized issues and what you learn about God's faithfulness needs to be talked about with your sons and your son's sons, with the next generation. I've shared many times about my love for the Iowa farm. My dad was an Iowa farm boy, born in the house in which he grew up. When he took a job in Omaha, Nebraska, he could not bear to leave Iowa. So I spent my life living on the correct side of the Jordan River. And my dad took little trips every day across over to the land on the other side to Nebraska. But he was an Iowa boy and remained an Iowa boy and couldn't bear the thought of living in Nebraska. One of my favorite things to do after a hard day of work, and believe me, my grandpa was old school. If there was an easy way to do something, a hard way, let's just do it the hard way. He was old school, and we would be exhausted. And after, for example, maybe we had made hay all day, then we'd come back, and right before dark, we'd get the chores done, and they had chickens and they had quite a few hogs and farrowing operation and they had cattle got the chores all done come in eat supper and then there's about an hour an hour and a half there right after dark where often we'd go out and sit on the back porch it was just a cement porch with bricks around the edge with little marbles stuck in the concrete with the date they poured the concrete And we'd sit out on those old metal chairs that kind of have a metal frame on them and they kind of rock. I don't know what you call those, but they're old school too. And we'd sit out there and tell stories. Now that's a lost art. Storytelling is a lost art, but I loved it. And and sometimes my grandpa would get going telling stories, 
And he would get into it so much and he would start laughing so hard that the tears would run down his eyes as he recounted stories of all the old neighbors, River Rat, who used to chew his cigars and came around with a corn sheller, and Jit the mechanic that lived up the road, and, and all of the stories he used to tell. And sometimes he would tell stories of hard things, stories of hard times on the farm. And just pass on in his very third grade education simple ways how God had been faithful to him. And here Joel is saying we need to take stock of God-sized issues and talk about them. Talk about what we learn from them. Talk about it with the next generation and the generation after that. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, is a great New Testament passage that reminds us in the local church of the importance of older women women building into the lives of younger women, older men building into the lives of younger men, sharing with them how the Bible relates to life and how God has been faithful through good times and God-sized issues. Now here in Joel, starting in verse 5 down through 13, It's very interesting what the prophet is going to challenge us to do. It's very interesting what the prophet challenges his original hearers to do. He's going to say this. Spend some time thinking about what you have lost. Now that's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? When we go through hard times, we want to forget about it. It's like... Oh, I don't want to think about all this stuff. I need to forget about this. I need to go have some fun. I need to go buy something. I need to go do something. I don't want to, I don't want to think about everything that I've lost. But here, Joel says, pause and count up your loss. And we'll see why he encourages us to do that. He talks to five different groups of people here. Some of them may surprise us. He talks to drunkards. He talks to farmers. He talks to vine growers. He's going to talk to the city of Jerusalem. And he's going to talk to the priests. So he pretty much talks to everyone across their society. And he's going to challenge them. Think about what you've lost. Verse 5. Awake, drunkards, and weep. Wail or mourn. All you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that's cut off from your mouth. So he's saying, those of you who love wine, think about what you've lost. The vineyard is bare. The particular word translated sweet wine here would be first crop wine. It's, it's new wine. 
it can still get you drunk. In fact, if you, the same word is used in Isaiah 49 verse 26, talking about getting drunk with sweet wine. It most likely has fermented, but maybe not gone through the full fermentation process. And here, Joel says, the word of the Lord to these drunkards says, think about what you've lost. No more wine. There's no more of this year's crop. You're not going to be able to say 514 was a good year because it's wiped out. In fact, these locusts have been like an army. Look at verse 6. The nation's been invaded by a mighty warrior without number and they, and they're so devourous that they have, you can just picture them as like having teeth like lions. Look at the end of verse 7. It says they've stripped everything so bad they've actually taken the bark off the vines, the outer layers off the vines. It says the branches have become white. Down in verse 11, he talks to the farmers and the vine growers and the fact that their crops are gone. They're devastated. In verse 8, there's an interesting thing that happens because the command wail, or your Bible may say mourn, switches to a feminine singular. And most Bible teachers think that what Joel is doing is actually talking in the feminine voice to the city of Jerusalem and say, Jerusalem, you need to stop and think, what have you lost? Look what they've lost. He says, first of all, you should be mourning. You should be considering your loss as if you were a bride-to-be and your groom was suddenly killed. That's how you should be feeling right now. You should be pondering, you should be mourning what you have lost. What have they lost? Verse 9, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn. So he's saying, no one can bring those, those offerings to the Lord to the temple anymore. Those joyous drink offerings where they would take uh, the wine and pour it out before the Lord. Those grain offerings that were brought to the temple to celebrate thankfulness to God for all of His blessing. We can't even bring an offering to the Lord anymore. Our worship has been affected because of the devastation of this God-sized issue. And he talks to the priest in verse 9 and verse 13 and calls upon them to put on sackcloth, this, this uncomfortable clothing of the day that would have been worn during times of repentance. And calls upon them in verse 13 to lament, to wail. Because at the end of the verse it says, the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Think about what you've lost. For a while there was a show on, I don't even know if it's on anymore, I think it maybe was on the Food Network, I'm not sure, but about restaurants that were not doing well. 
And this guy would come in and he would try to help turn around this failing restaurant. Often they were, oftentimes the episodes were really gross. You wouldn't want to see the kitchen in a failing restaurant. One of the interesting things I saw as I watched of several episodes of that show is that the owner of the restaurant rarely had a sense of his loss. Meaning, if the guy would ask them, well, are you making any money? Or how much are you losing? They really couldn't quite tell them. Well, I don't think it's good. And they rarely would have ever actually totaled up their debt or what their net worth was before they started the restaurant and what their net worth was now. They never really stopped to consider the loss. And here, Joel says, just pause. You are in a God-sized issue. Take time and think about what you've lost. Pause. That's really hard for us to do today. I did a retreat about a week ago, two weeks ago. And whenever I go on retreats, I have this little manual called... uh a guide to devotions and retreats for God's leaders, something like that. And it gives you a little model to follow. And the first thing that you're supposed to do is just be silent for 30 minutes. You know how hard that is? To not have on any music in the background, not have any, just be silent and think and listen. And hear Joel saying, just pause. Think about what you've lost. Israel here, they've lost God's blessing. If you look at, it's very interesting. If you look at verse seven, it says, it has made my my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. If you look up in verse 12, it says, the vine dries up and the fig tree fails. In the Old Testament, The vine and the fig were considered signs of God's blessing upon his people. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 8, we read this. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates. Another example of that I'm not going to turn to is found in 1 Kings chapter 4 verse 25. If you remember with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28 through 30, this was God's word to the people of Israel as they came into the land. If you obey me, I'm going to bless you. You're going to have great crops. You're going to have peace in the land. You are going to have many children. But if you disobey me, your crops are going to be devastated. And foreign invaders will come in and take you. And by the way, we've mentioned this before, but that promise was for Israel. It's not a promise for the church today. But for Israel here in the time of Joel, when it says that the vine and the fig are destroyed, it's saying, hey, we've lost God's blessing upon us. And the other thing that they've lost is the joy of worship. They can't go to the temple anymore. 
They've lost that joy of being right with God. When we face God-sized issues in our lives, usually what we try to do is just try to run as fast as we can to find a way out. We try to work as hard as we can to get out. We try to take action and get through it as fast as we can so we can get out. And we start not physically running, maybe sometimes, but we start emotionally running. I've got to get through this. I've got to get through this. I've got to get through this. And when it's a god size issue, we soon realize we can't. There's not enough creativity, there's not enough ingenuity, there's not enough inner strength in and of ourselves to figure it out. So we have a sense of loss too. We have loss too. Sometimes if there's sin involved and God's trying to get our attention through a God-sized issue, we've lost the joy of being close to God and having the Spirit of God being in control of our lives. Now, we're going to look next week. When we face God-sized issues, sometimes God's trying to get our attention, to get us to yield our lives back to Him. But not always. Sometimes God brings God-sized issues into our lives for other reasons. But here, we're going to see next week, here it's because of Israel's sin. And when we face God-sized issues, we need to pause as well and consider our loss. Maybe in my God-sized issue, I'm allowing anxiety to rule, and what I'm losing is peace. Maybe in my God-sized issue, I'm trying to get through it in my own strength, and I'm what I'm losing is the vitality of staying connected to Jesus Christ and depending on Him. There's a reason why Joel here in verses 5 through 13 calls upon his readers to actually list what they have lost. It's because in a sense of loss, it finally brings us to verse 14. The need to turn to God. You see, so often when we face God-sized issues, we don't turn to God until we start really realizing what we've lost. And that's exactly what happens here in, in verse 14, following verses 1 through 13. Finally, after God's people take time to really count what they have lost. It's time for Joel to say this. Now it's time to fast and pray. God-sized issues are a call to believers to fast and pray. Look at verse 14. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. The word consecrate in verse 14 is a word that's based on the word holy. To set apart something only for God. And so here, what Joel is saying is, 
dedicate a period of fasting that's only for the Lord. And it's not a call to a single person. He said it's a call to the community. It says here in verse 14, proclaim a solemn assembly. You don't walk through God-sized issues by yourself. And as Christians, we are not to walk through God-sized issues by ourselves. God-sized issues are a call for us to reach out to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And together, call out to the Lord in prayer. He says, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to him. Pray to him. In the Old Testament, fasting is often connected to repentance. Coming to that point where we acknowledge our sin and change the direction of our life back to God. For example, we see that in 1 Samuel chapter 7 verses 3 through 6. When we come to the New Testament, we see Jesus fasting. In Matthew chapter 4 verse 2, he fasted 40 days. We see Jesus teaching about fasting. In Matthew chapter 6 verses 16 through 18, he says, when you're fasting, don't do it so that everybody around you knows that you're fasting. You don't go unshaven and walk around looking gaunt saying, oh, I don't feel very good today, I'm fasting. No, he says, that's between you and the Lord. And when we fast, it's not to somehow work God. It's not trying to manipulate God. When I have practiced fasting in my life, I have tried to think about passages like Matthew chapter 4 verse 2, or excuse me, passages like Matthew chapter 5 verse 6 when it says we are to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Or John chapter 4 verse 34 where Jesus says my food is to do the will of him who sent me. What fasting does is this. When we feel the physical Pangs of hunger. It's, it's a very vivid reminder that ultimately, as I'm hungering for food, ultimately, I need to be hungering for God. It's us saying to God, I'm finally come to the point in this God-sized issue where I realize I need you. There's nothing else that will help. There's no one else that will help. My wife can't fix it. My husband can't fix it. I can't fix it. And as God's people, fast. It's saying to God, we finally have come to the point where we recognize it's you that I need. You know, the other important thing here to remember is that this is not a call to prayer and fasting by oneself. Think about James 5. What does it say? Is anyone among you sick? Is anyone among you weak? Call for the elders. They'll come and anoint you and pray with you. 
And we do that here at Faith Bible Church. That's why after every service we announce that if there's anything on your heart today that is weighing you down, we encourage you to go back and one of our leaders, one of our elders will be back in the prayer room and wants to pray with you. We don't walk the Christian life by ourselves. This is why we have small groups at Faith Bible Church. We don't walk through life by ourselves. We gather our small group together and say, I need God and I need you to pray with me through this God-sized issue. In 1995, when my wife Barbara and I moved back to Iowa from North Dakota, several things shocked me. One of which was that people in Cedar Rapids were buying rocks. I was flabbergasted. In North Dakota, there are rocks everywhere. I mean, every spring, these rocks would, great soil, but every spring, massive amount of rocks push their way up through the soil. And farmers actually have, it's called a rock picker. It's an implement they take behind their tractor and they go through the field and they pick up, they pick up rocks. And then, Usually, if we can get anybody willing to do it, they would hire our youth group at our church to come, quote-unquote, pick rocks. And they would take the money and use it for their mission trip. Because of that, there are piles and piles of rocks. And usually what guys do is find some place, dig a deep hole, and bury them so that they can start working their way back up again. But... I was amazed, just like, you've got to be kidding me. I remember seeing a drug town, somebody paying like eight bucks for a rock. I felt like saying, let me get a truck. I'll go to North Dakota. Uh, I'll pre-sell these at eight bucks a peak. I'll be a rich man. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. You're paying money for rocks. I, just, I still can't quite fathom it. Now, once in a while... A rock would work its way to the surface and it would just be gigantic one. It would just be huge. And here's our little 8th through 12th graders out in the middle of this field. And the fields in North Dakota are big and there's this mammoth rock. And they say, oh man, we can't do anything about that one. Why? Well, that's a God-sized rock. And when we hit God-sized rocks, God-sized trials, while our normal instinct is just to try to figure out how am I going to get through this as fast as I can, what Joel says is pause. Think. When we're in the midst of the storm, when we're in the midst of the God-sized trial, think about what's been lost. And it's through that that we finally start realizing this is too big for me. And we turn to God.